good morning and welcome on this snowy Sunday morning. Thank you all for coming out. It's amazing. Please be seated. Sorry to make you stand. Listen, um, this Wednesday will be New Steps class, or I'm sorry, um, it's my class. Yeah, the New Steps class with me. And then um, Friday, this Friday is Men's Night Out. We're going to be showing a movie here. We're going to have pizza just for the guys. Starts at 6 o'clock. So if you can make it out, you're all, all, if you're a guy, you are welcome to attend. Um, and then Sunday, January 24th, we're going to have an afternoon at the movies, but of course is the whole body is welcome to stay for that. So if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. 2021's got to be a little different than 2020, no? But listen, let me read a verse. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. So Peter steps out of this boat into a storm-tossed sea. And as long as he kept his focus on Jesus, he could actually walk on the tops of the storm-tossed waves. How amazing is that? As soon as he took his focus off of Jesus, he became aware of the storm around him, and he began to sink. And so our focus as a church, and we've never done this before, so this is the Lord, in 2021 is going to be keep our focus on Jesus. And so no matter what the storm is, no matter what the storm is that we face, we're going to stay above of the waves, and we're going to keep focusing on Jesus. And God, in his graciousness was gracious enough to provide us with a storm this morning just to illustrate this point amen because listen when we lose that focus we do begin to sink we sink into despair we sink into depression we sink into fear we sink into anxiety and listen there's enough fear being being shown to us every single day on the news Everyone is in a state of panic. Everyone is in a state of fear. And that is not who we are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We've not been given a spirit of fear. So this year, 2021, let's get out of the boat. Let's get out of our comfort zone. And let's walk above those storm-tossed waters, keeping our focus on Jesus. Amen? Because, listen, he is the only one. The only one that can save us from the storm. So... That is our New Year's message. So today's a two for one. Last week, we looked at the formula in Revelation 15, if you will, for avoiding the wrath of God. And I, I get it. I get it. It's tough sitting here every, every Sunday and listening to the death and destruction, isn't it? And when you really dig into this, it's, it's just mind-boggling how much death and destruction there truly is. That formula we looked at last week that helps you avoid this wrath of the tribulation consisted of what? Recognizing that you're a sinner, right? And, that, and we recognize that by looking at the law of God and realizing that we can never live up to that, that we are sinners, that we fall way short of that. And then so the next part of that formula, as I said, if you will, is repenting of that sin, turning to Jesus and putting him where Putting your faith in him, rather, where you're going to be set free from your sin and made one with Jesus Christ. And so it's a simple formula. You and I saw the need for this formula. You and I saw that there was no way we were going to heaven in the state of sin that we were in. You and I saw that. Praise the Lord. But many just don't get it. They still haven't gotten it. Now, whether they don't want to get it because it means they have to change their lives, I don't know what it takes for them to get it. For me, it took a lot of loss. It took a lot of getting beat up to cause me to fondly look up. But the key to all of this is placing our faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin, 
And that's what really changes us, isn't it? It changes us not only inwardly and outwardly, but it also changes our eternal destination. That's why we're so adamant. That's why Christians are such pains in the rears, because we want to continue to preach the gospel as long as the Lord allows us to do it. As long as there's light, there's daylight, we are to be preaching the gospel, because darkness is coming. There's coming a time when we're not going to be able to do this. So we're so adamant about doing because we know what the consequences are if you do not accept Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also you once conducted yourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So you see, before Jesus, we were just like this. And the only way to describe us at that point in our lives was that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead, not physically, but dead spiritually. It was our sin, the sin that, by the way, we're born with, we're born into, that stains us, that sin stains us from the moment we enter into this world. It's that sin that puts us in that position. Before we surrendered to Jesus, we walked according to the desires of our flesh. We walked the way the rest of the world walked. We did what the rest of the world did. We spoke like the rest of the world spoke because we were part of the world. In reality, who were we, we were really walking with was Satan. And you could we, we didn't see it that way, did we? We just were doing what the rest of the world did. We, we did what everyone else was doing. But that position we took made us children of wrath, not children of God. And that position did not and cannot change until we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what changes us from children of wrath to children of God. John said in his gospel, But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Our position changed when we became children of God. A change that, as you see from this verse, can only happen, can only be brought about by God. Jesus said to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, But assuredly I say to you, no less one is born again, he cannot cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verse 3. Now, a better translation of that verse would be to be born from above. Unless one is born from above, unless one is given a nature, a spiritual nature that you do not have, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So, that has to happen from above. But think about this. If we are newly born into a spiritual birth from above, then wouldn't we belong to heaven at that point? No longer of this world, but of the kingdom of God. Because we've been born new from above. That is now our home. Without that new birth, we're still in the flesh. We're still fulfilling the desires of our flesh. And we remain dead in our trespasses and sin. And that makes us destined for the wrath of God. Now I bring all of this up and as, as we go into Revelation 16 to let you know those who are listening who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior whether you're on, on Facebook live watching us or on, on the website watching us you cannot enter heaven without Jesus Christ. It's plain and simple. I didn't make that rule. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one enters Heaven, no one comes to the Father except through me. And you will face, without Jesus Christ, the wrath of God. And I don't think we really appreciate what that means. And that's what the book of Revelation is, shows us. It shows us what the wrath of God is going to be, how it's going to come upon the face of this earth. And it is not a pretty picture, is it? But it doesn't have to come to that. Jesus died in our place, taking the wrath of God for our sins. So when you put your faith in him, you go from being a child of, the, of wrath to a child of God. And no child of God will ever face the wrath of God. Amen? 
So let's finally look at verse 1 in chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. So, the first question we ask ourselves is, whose voice is this? Whose loud voice is this? And we don't have to look very far to find out whose voice it is. We only have to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, which says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And who was it, you guys who have been with me through Revelation chapter 1, whose voice was this? Jesus. This is the voice of Jesus. So Jesus tells these seven angels that it's time. It's time to take these bowls containing the last judgments that are, come, that are to come upon the world and pour them out. And by Jesus instructing these angels to bring judgment against the earth, he's saying it's by my authority, it's by my command that this is being done. And that makes sense to us because in John's Gospel we read, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So all judgment has been given to Jesus, and he's commanded the angels to carry out this final judgment. Now, the angels mentioned here are tasked with pouring out these bowls. And it's interesting to note that in the other judgments we saw in Revelation, right, a trumpet would blow, and then there would be a disaster would strike. Or a seal would open, and judgment would come. But these are bowls. Now, some of your translations may even say vials. So the impression I get when I read that is that this is some kind of liquid, maybe. Maybe even a powder of sorts. I mean, it's in a bowl. So obviously it has to be something that needs to be contained in a bowl. And why would you use a bowl when you use trumpets and seals for the other judgments, right? So it must be something different. Now, Revelation 14 seems to support this. They, too, will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Revelation 14.10. The fact that they are in bowls, when the angel tips this bowl over, whatever is inside of it, it's meant to be poured out completely. Nothing left. Now another interesting fact here is the word angel, or angels, is used 280 times in the Bible. It's used 172 times in the New Testament alone. But in the book of Revelation, it is used 72 of those 172 times, making the book of Revelation the, having the most references to angels of any other book in the Bible. And we see the angels here. We see the angels in the last days at the end times, very, very busy indeed, carrying out the commands of heaven. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the parts of that model prayer was, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Notice, as it is in heaven, right? When God speaks, his commands are carried out. You don't see the angels ask God why. You don't see the angels say, did God really mean that? Was God just joking with us? Or argue over the interpretation of what God said. They do what he says, and they do it immediately. They follow the words of his commandment. And it's interesting to, to, to see that Jesus would tell us, his disciples, to pray that we would obey God's will like that. Just throwing it out there. Just going to leave it hanging in the air there. So these bowls contain the wrath of God. Now the wrath of God is pictured in many different ways in Scripture. In Ezekiel 32.11, it says it burns hot. Deuteronomy 9, verse 7, it can be provoked. In 2 Kings 22.17, it can be aroused. In 2 Chronicles 29.10, his wrath is fierce. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 22, it's against those who forsake God. In Job chapter 20, verse 23, it is God's fury. In Job 20, 23, it's, we're told that it rains down. God's wrath rains down. In Psalm 59, 31, his wrath is consuming. And in Ezekiel 22, 31, it is like a burning fire. So those are the descriptions of God's wrath. And then there's reasons why God pours out his wrath. In Romans 1, verse 18, he pours out his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In Romans 2, 25, 2 5, rather, he pours it out upon those who have hardness of heart, who are unrepentant. 
And in Ephesians 5, chapter 6, he pours out his wrath upon the disobedience of man. So we see his wrath today, and we've seen it throughout the book of Revelation, being poured out on the ungodly and the unrighteous people, those who refuse to repent of their sin. Their disobedience to the, to the command of God to repent provokes God's hot, burning fury to rain down upon them as his wrath consumes them like a burning fire. But know this. It's easy to just see the destruction. It's easy to just see the pain and the suffering in the book of Revelation. And you have to look just a little bit deeper to see God's wrath, God's wrath being tempered by his mercy. As sinners, we deserve what? Death. We deserve his wrath. But God doesn't give us what we deserve, does he? He gives us his mercy. And, and by his grace, we're given eternal life, something we don't deserve at all, instead of eternal separation. But to know God's mercy and God's grace, we need to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We need to submit our lives to him and surrender our wills to him. That's the only way you're going to see God's mercy and grace. And I want you to take notice as we go through chapter 6 of Revelation of the similarities between the plagues that are poured out here and the plagues in Egypt. And I'm going to point them out as we get to each one. So Jesus says, go. Meaning that the time for the final judgment to come upon this earth is at hand, and these judgments are ready to be poured out. Take a look at verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and the foul, loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So the first bowl contains the wrath of God in the form of a sore. Now that word can also be translated boil. Where else do we see boils coming upon people? In Exodus, right? One of the plagues in Exodus. Exodus chapter 9, um, beginning in verse 8, refers to boils, plural, being poured out upon the people of Egypt. But here our word is singular. It's a sore. And since it only comes upon those who take the mark of the beast, it seems as if this mark that they have taken in the skin becomes infected. It becomes a festering, oozing, foul-smelling, loathsome infection. And I, I would try to throw a few more adjectives in there, but I didn't want to completely have you lose your breakfast. The place where they receive this mark, whether it's on their forehead or their hand, somehow becomes infected, and it's almost like there's a poison there, right? And this poison is beginning to rot from the inside out. Now, the mark itself, we know, is the mark of the beast. And we read about that in Revelation 13. He causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. So, they've received the mark on the beast. They received it either on their forehead or on their right hand. And it marks them. Now, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 16, the priests who were commanded by God to wear a sign as a reminder of the one true God and what God had done for them in, in Israel, in the wilderness. We read, So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as a phylactery on your forehead, for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, that word phylactery is a, is a sign. And, and, it, and in the beginning, it was just that. It was a sign. They, they used the scripture as a sign. Now, of course, you see the priests, they walk around with a little box on their forehead, and there's one on their wrist, and it contains little scrolls. And it's, it's, it's just a symbol at this point. It really doesn't have the same impact or meaning that it was originally designed for. But what it said was that their allegiance was to God, and their allegiance was to his word, and that was to be displayed in a very prominent place as a reminder to them of their relationship with God. So it's interesting that this mark is also taken on the forehead and on the hand, and it marks them in a very prominent place, and it also says that their allegiance belongs to a God, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the false God, Satan. Now, that word for mark in the Greek is charamaga. 
and it means to be stamped or imprinted. And it refers to something that's been carved. It can refer to a graven work. It could refer to an idol that's been carved. For example, when the emperor in Rome had coins made, he had his, his face, his image, stamped on those coins. And so that's what that word kind of means. Those who take this mark are more concerned with their material well-being than they are with their spiritual well-being. That's obvious. And their problem isn't serving God and mammon because you and I know that you cannot serve both. Jesus tells us that. You can only, only serve one or the other. You can't serve both. Their problem is they want to serve the God of mammon. They take the mark because they believe it's going to secure their financial future. Now think about this. This great reset that's being talked about happens as it's planned by 2030, and everyone is made equal, or everyone has equitable distribution of wealth, which is the plan, meaning that no one owns anything greater than anyone else. We're all equal. And what we'll have by that time, in order to put this in place, is a centrally controlled government, a one-world order, right? And with that one-world order, with this great reset, it'll make it so much easier to control the masses of people, to control the sheep. I love being one of Jesus' sheep, but I refuse to be a sheep for any government. People by then will become so used to following the dictates of a government that they'll be easy to keep in control. They'll be easy to keep in line. And those who don't fall for this will be readily, they'll be easily noticeable. You were going to stick out like sore thumbs. When the great deception comes, it's not going to force people, it's not going to be forcefully put upon people to be deceived. It's going to cause those who are already deceived, who are already buying into this, to jump into that deception with both feet. Listen, there are those who are going to fight against this and not take the mark of the beast and not give in to any of this. And then there are those who are going to comply like sheep, sheep being led to slaughter. And that's why the book of Revelation is here, to remind us, to warn us that this is coming. Why else would God put this in this book? It's a warning. The book of Revelation isn't meant to scare us. It's meant to prepare us for what's to come. It's coming. It's in this book. God said it's going to happen. It's going to happen just as he said it would. For those who take this mark, their idol is mammon. It's, it's wealth. It's materialism. It's the world system. And it's, one, it's the one who controls their financial future. The beast. The antichrist. The mark is going to mark them as part of this new world order. Not part of the kingdom of heaven, but part of the new world order. And so that mark, once they take it, is going to seal their fate. And the fact that this mark turns into a foul infection on their body has to be an indication that they've made a horrific mistake. Listen, the best thing we can tell people is to come to Christ, right? That's the gospel message. That's the message of hope. But if they continue to reject that message, the other thing that we can tell them, the best thing we can tell them at that point is, hey, listen, just don't take the mark. Whatever you do, do not take the mark. Because no matter what you do now, if you don't take that mark, at least you have another chance. At least you have another chance to come to Christ. So if they don't come to Christ today, in this lifetime, before it's too late, and they wind up in the middle of the tribulation, the best advice we could give them is do not, under any circumstances, no matter what it means, take the mark of the beast. Amen? Look at verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. How many creatures in the sea died? All of them. All of them. Nobody escaped this. Nobody. The sea is turned to blood. Now, some have tried to explain this away as being the red tide. You guys all know what the red tide is, especially if you live down by the shore at any point in your life. Red tide is an algae, right? And that algae actually turns the water red. And, it, and it's harmful to humans as well as to marine life. But the problem with that interpretation is we're trying to scientifically explain away a work of God. 
The fact is that red tide usually only affects a portion of a body of water. This judgment affects all the waters over all the earth and kills all of the sea life around the world. God turned the Nile in Egypt into blood, Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And so he's perfectly capable of turning the seas into blood during the tribulation. No. When the sea turns to blood, all the creatures die. Not only will that leave a horrific stench throughout the world, but think, think about what happens to sea creatures when they die. They don't drift to the bottom. What do they do? They float to the surface. So that's going to clog up the shipping lanes, causing commerce by sea to come to a screeching halt. And that's already going to add to a damaged commercial infrastructure. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became as blood, or they became blood, rather. Not as blood, they became blood. So commercial fishing, commercial shipping have been stopped. They've been greatly affected. They've come to a standstill, meaning that seafood, which is a source of food for the world, has stopped. Getting produce and getting other things through this that we get in shipments on, by sea have stopped. So a major source of food around the world has died off. And now the fresh water supply has been affected. It's been turned to blood. So it's effectively not usable. Now if farmers can't water their fields and they can't water their animals, what happens to their fields and their animals? They're going to die. And so that's going to affect another major source of food supply for, for mankind, won't it? And so the suffering on the earth at this point is unbearable. It's indescribable almost. Man's going to seek death but will not find it. Look at verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. So notice the angel of the waters says, You are righteous, O Lord. He doesn't say you're merciful. He says you're righteous. But all through the book of Revelation, and even as the Bible as a whole, we see the mercy of God being extended to those who seek it. Now, God could have just taken his bride, the church, out of this world and destroyed the rest of the world, just wiped it out. Instead, he gives those who are left behind a chance, a second chance, if you will, to repent and be redeemed. That's mercy. That's his mercy. But now... There's also a time to exact his justice. Righteousness and justice in the Bible are used interchangeably. To put this in perspective, sin is a crime against God. Plain and simple. There's no simpler way to describe it. And God doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't make excuses for it. He deals with it. He brings those who commit the crime of sin against him to justice. Plain and simple. And that's in contrast to the world we live in, isn't it? Because if you have enough money in this world, if you have enough political connections, you can get away with theft. You can get away with rape. You can get away with sex trafficking. You can get away with pedophilia. You can get away with bribery. You can get away with just about anything. But under God's system of justice, there is no crime. There is no sin that will, not, that will be ignored. The psalmist struggled with all of this. As I'm sure some of us do. When you look around and you see guys seemingly getting away with this stuff and not getting punished for it, right? Our sense of justice, because we have the heart of Christ in us, there's a sense of justice in us. We want to see this all come to justice. And there was a psalmist who struggled with the same thing. He saw the righteous suffer while the wicked were seemingly getting away with it. And so it didn't seem fair to him. It doesn't seem fair to us, does it? Until... He went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end, he writes. Surely you should set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terror. Psalm 73, verse 17 through 19. You see, the wicked it may seem like they're getting away with it, but their crimes aren't just against man. They're against God. 
They may escape punishment and judgment on this earth, but they will never escape the judgment of God. God's justice demands that the violators of the law be brought to justice and face punishment for their sin, which is what? What is the punishment for sin? Death. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. All ungodliness. All unrighteousness. Of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. He goes on to write, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. Listen, somewhere deep down inside of all of us, we know right from wrong, don't we? You know, I watched a show this week on how the BCU, the, the FBI's behavioral science unit, was formed. Pretty fascinating show. And so they started out by interviewing some of, the fam some of these famous serial killers, if you want to call them famous, and as you're watching these interviews, you could see in their eyes and their face that there's no remorse for what they've done, nothing whatsoever. There's no compassion in their eyes whatsoever for the, the pain and the suffering that they've caused. Now, some would argue that their sense of right and wrong has been diminished somehow. But they knew what they were doing was wrong because they desperately tried to avoid being caught. And so if you don't care if you're caught or not, then... You must not think you're doing anything wrong, right? But they desperately tried to avoid being caught, meaning that they knew what they were doing was wrong. They suppressed the knowledge of what was right and did what they knew to be wrong. And many today are doing the exact same thing. The crimes, the list of their crimes against humanity is extensive. And they think just because they can seemingly get away with it, that they're immune from judgment. Immune from, if they're immune from judgment here, they must be immune from judgment by God. But listen, you may escape man's justice, but no one escapes the justice of God. And unless you repent, our righteous and holy God will judge those who stand against the sinless, spotless Lamb of Christ Jesus. The standard has been set. That standard is what? What's the standard that Jesus set for each of us to meet? Perfection perfection that's where the bar is set it's set at perfection anything less than perfection will be judged by God and found guilty and those who are found guilty are going to suffer the consequences of sin which is eternal separation from God they're going to be cast into utter darkness the Bible tells us where there, the fire is never quenched the worm never dies and where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that's the end of the wicked that the psalmist saw in the temple in the end, no one gets away with sin. In the end, all those who have not been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will pay the price for their sin. And it's a shame because God's mercy, in his mercy, he has provided a way for all those, all of us, to be saved from the judgment to come. He sent his only son who paid that price for our sin for us. And when we submit our lives to him, when we surrender our will to him, we're saved from the judgment to come. We're saved from the wrath of God. Now notice here, it says that God who was, who is, and who is to be. Now that's a slight variation on who was and is and is to come, right? Is to be means in the future, the near future tense. It means that the return of Jesus Christ at this point in the tribulation is right around the corner. Time's running out. Time's running out to repent. Time is running out. Because once Jesus' foot steps on the Mount of Olives, it is too late to repent. There is no second chance at that point. And listen, let me add, because we're talking about the tribulation. If you were to die today without Jesus Christ, it's too late to repent. There is no second chances. The next time you open your eyes, you're going to be looking at the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and judge and you will be judged according to your works. 
And I, for one, do not want to stand before the sinless, spotless lamb and have to explain to him how I was a good person in my life. Look at verse 6. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. Got my notes in here blocking the words. Now they're there, so they'll block next week. And you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. So they, meaning the inhabitants left on the earth, those who have been left behind, those who have made the home, their home rather, this world, and this world system, their religion, that's the they we're talking about. But this has a far-reaching meaning. They, through the ages, have rejected God. They have shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. All that blood is on their hands, on all of their hands. Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as a generational curse. Do you understand that? I see these things on the Internet all the time. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means his blood is sufficient for all sin. And if you believe you're under some generational curse, and that means it's not sufficient for the curse that you're under. And that's just not true. But however, this is the way the law works. For a follower of Jesus Christ, we are not under the law, correct? But if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you break even one law, the Bible tells us, you are guilty of breaking them all. As James points out, he says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. James chapter 2, verse 10. So if you're in Christ, you're no longer under the law, and if, and if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will be found guilty under the law, all of the law, past, present, and future. So the blood of the saints, the blood of the prophets are on your hands as well as those who slayed them. And if you're so bloodthirsty, this passage tells us, then here's rivers, here's springs, here's oceans filled with blood. In the end, God gives them their just due. He gives them exactly what they asked for. He gives them the wrath of God. Because in the end, we ask for that wrath. God gives us the opportunity to avoid it. And so if we choose not to do that, then we must be saying, bring it, God, bring it on. I don't care. Bring your wrath on. There's no other way to make sense of that, is there? It's just a, an arrogance that's, Almost hard to explain, almost hard to imagine. Look at verses 8 and 9. I'm sorry, look at verse 7. Jumping ahead of myself. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord, God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So there's another voice that comes from around the altar area. And there's the voices of the slain. Remember, back in Revelation, earlier in Revelation, the, those who were slain, the tribulation saints, are under the altar of God crying out for judgment crying out for judgment upon those who had slain them. And so this is the judgment being carried out upon them. Those who seem to have gotten away with it, gotten away with it on this earth, who seemingly didn't suffer the consequences for their sin here, will know the justice of God because no one gets away with anything. God's going to bring his judgment upon this unjust world. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl to, on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who was power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So, as I said, the suffering on the earth at this point has to be unbearable. Unbearable. The food has been wiped out. The water source has been wiped out. And now the rays of the sun are so intense that it's actually burning mankind's skin. So we know the rays of the sun are radioactive, right? And the only thing that protects us from those rays are the ozone, is the ozone layer. So as, ra as the radiation is emitted from the sun, that ozone layer acts as a block to protect us from those rays. But if the ozone layer is removed, God put it there so you can certainly remove it then those harmful rays will be able to get right through and actually burn mankind. I can't even imagine the blistering, the damage done to unprotected skin from the rays of the sun. Anybody here ever gotten a real bad sunburn? You can multiply this by a thousand. 
So the intense heat from the sun would also increase the temperature around the globe, wouldn't it? So man would be dying not only from burns, but from heat exhaustion. Make no mistake, this plague is from God. Listen to a prophecy from Isaiah. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Isaiah 24, 6. But look at the response of mankind to this, to this plague. They blame God for it. They shake their fist at God. They brought this wrath upon themselves, and they refuse to repent. They brought this wrath upon themselves because they refuse to repent. And they claim that it's God's fault for their suffering. How many times do we blame God for the things that happen in our lives? But God in his mercy has given them a way to avoid his wrath, and they chose to ignore it, and now they're going to suffer the consequences of it. I can't state this enough. There's a warning here in this book. You don't have to go through this. You don't have to see this. You don't have to experience the judgment and wrath of God. There is a way around this. There's a way out of this, and that is only through Jesus Christ. The only way you would avoid, the only way that you would ignore this is if you didn't believe it. But sadly, for those who are alive during the tribulation, it's going to come to into reality right before their very eyes, and they're going to realize that this is for real. Only for some, it's going to be too late. Look at verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. So as these bowls are being poured out, please note that they're being poured out in succession, meaning one after the other. There's no pause. There's no break between them. It's one disaster after another. And so the scorching sun is followed by a darkness that hurts. Now, darkness is another reference to a plague in Egypt, right? In Exodus chapter 20, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 29, there was a darkness that covered the land, a darkness so thick that you could feel it. This darkness that we're seeing here in Revelation was actually prophesied. Isaiah spoke of this darkness that would engulf all the nations. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness of the people. Isaiah 60, verse 2. Joel spoke of this darkness. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds, of thick darkness. Joel chapter 2, verse 2. And Jesus told us it would happen. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars of heaven will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So this earth is plunged into a deep, deep darkness. But doesn't the Bible tell us that man loves the darkness? Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. They love the darkness. And so now they get what they ask for. They get darkness. They get a real taste of darkness, a darkness that actually causes pain. And it's a preview for what lies ahead if they continue in their sinful nature. If they refuse to repent, this is a darkness that they'll be cast into where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this darkness won't last for a season. It'll last for all eternity. This darkness that engulfs the land is obviously the absence of sunlight, right? So when the sun stopped shining, the people of the earth must have been joyful. Figuring there's, this is a blessing because we're no longer going to be scorched by the sun. But with darkness comes coldness. This is a biting cold. It didn't bring relief. It just brought more suffering. This is a darkness that's so cold, it causes pain. It doesn't have to be this way. It does not have to be this way. It does not ever have to get this far. You know, there was another time in the land when darkness covered the land, and that was when Jesus died on the cross. As Jesus hung there, paying the price for your sin and my sin, he provided a way for us to avoid having to go through this pain and suffering. He provided a way for us to avoid having to suffer the wrath of God. He endured the pain and suffering so that you and I do not have to. And all required of us is to repent and turn away from our sin and turn to him and we will be saved. 
So it never has to come to this point. Look at verse 11, our last verse this morning. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. This is kind of a a tough verse, because it appears that the people left on the earth, to me at least, all the people who are left, you would think, are the ones who have taken the mark of the beast by this time, right? But this verse says that even through all the pain, through all the suffering, they blaspheme God and refuse to repent. Repent from what? I believe if you take the mark of the beast, there is no repentance. You've sealed your fate. You cannot be forgiven. And Revelation chapter 14 tells us that the fate of those who take the mark of the beast is the fires of hell. It's pretty clear. It's laid out pretty clearly in Scripture. So could this refer to people who are left on the earth who have not turned to Jesus Christ, but have also not taken the mark of the beast? As crazy as that sounds, it seems like there are people left who have not taken the mark of the beast. They refuse to turn to Jesus. They refuse to repent. But they've not taken the mark of the beast. Somehow they've avoided it. Somehow they've gone through all of the the pain and the suffering to avoid it. Why wouldn't they turn to Jesus at that point? Perhaps they're angry with God. Perhaps they've lost loved ones. Perhaps they're angry over the loss of their businesses or over their homes. But whatever the case is, they are angry enough at God to speak evil of God, to rail against God blaming him for their pain and suffering. And in their anger, to their own detriment, they refuse to repent. That is the ultimate display of arrogance, isn't it? Anger like this often does more harm to the person who is angry than it does to the subject of his anger, doesn't it? And that's certainly true in this case. Their anger does nothing against God, but what they've done is invited God's wrath against them. So this call for repentance that we see, this is the last call. This is the last call in in the book of Revelation. From this point on, there will be nothing left but death and destruction before Jesus returns to rule and reign on this earth. At this point in the tribulation, it may become too late for people to repent. And the sad truth for many, for many listening to the sound of my voice today, today may be too late because no one is guaranteed even our very next breath, are they? Repentance and turning to Jesus is something that we all put off. I'll do it when my kids are older. I'll do it when I retire. I'll do it when I have more time. We put it off all the time. Today may be your last day here. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. No one. And so maybe that's you here today. Maybe that's you listening to the sound of my voice this morning. Maybe you've heard the gospel message. Maybe somebody's preached the gospel message who told you about the hope in Jesus Christ and you've put off. You've put off turning to Jesus. The good news is that we're not in the middle of the tribulation yet. It's coming, but we're not there yet. And God in his mercy has provided a way for you to avoid waking up and standing before him at the great white throne judgment. And that way is by repenting of your sin, turning to Jesus, surrendering your life to him, and submitting your will to him. And God has made this simple. He's made it actually as simple as ABC. A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen, that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 tells us that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You may believe you're a good person. You may be a good person. Me be the best person around. But based on those two verses that I just read, there is none who are good, none who are righteous. We need a Savior. Paul wrote, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6, 23. The only way to be saved from the judgment to come is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And hopefully you don't wait. You don't put that off. You do it today. So the next step is B, believe in your heart. Believe in your heart that that Jesus died for your sins, that God raised him, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Paul wrote, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth the confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
Listen, I say this every week to the point where you're going to get sick of hearing it. But it's necessary. We need to be reminded of this all the time. There's not a day goes by that I ever regretted giving my heart to Jesus Christ, ever. Once you admit you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, then you have to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. And that brings us to C. Call upon the name of the Lord. Call to Jesus. Confess that you can't do this on your own. That you need him. You need a savior. That you want to submit your life to him and submit your will to him. Surrender to Jesus Christ. Surrender to him today. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's pretty simple. Listen, please don't ever think that you're beyond the reach of God, that you've done something, that you've done many things in your life that you cannot be forgiven for. The only thing you cannot be forgiven for is to die in your sin to, without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no forgiveness for that. There is no second chance. Once you leave this earth, once you close your eyes without knowing Jesus Christ, it is too late. Without Jesus, we're actually, the Bible tells us, at war with God. We're at enmity with him. Paul wrote that there's good news for that. There's good news because we can be reconciled to God. While yet you were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we've, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we are saved by his life. So if you surrender to Jesus today, you will be reconciled to God. No longer an enemy of God, but now an heir to the kingdom of heaven. You will be justified, just as if you never did it. Sanctified, washed clean of all your sins. Reconciled. All your sin forgiven, past, present, and future. That's a pretty good package deal, no? If that's what you want, if that's the desire of your heart, then call to Jesus today. Call upon him. Surrender your will to him. Submit your life to him. And you will be saved. And because no one knows the day or the hour that you're going to leave this earth, today might be the last day. Don't put this off until tomorrow. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today. Amen? Let's pray. And then we're going to, I'm going to ask Ricky to come up and do a little worship. And we're going to have communion this morning and then a Gopi feast. And hopefully we walk out in the parking lot and all the snow will be melted. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. That even in the midst of all of this pain and suffering, even in the midst of this storm called the tribulation, if people just look to you, they will be saved. How amazing is that, Lord? that you just don't give up on mankind. You could just wipe us out, Lord, but you put up with us. More than that, Lord, you love us while we were still sinners. You looked upon each one of us and you declared us worthy in your eyes to go to the cross for, to, to die for. How amazing is that, Lord? How amazing is that love that you have for each of us? We are so grateful, Lord, for your mercy and your grace and your love. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.